0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. Backed by AMC Networks, Shudder lets you discover a library of horror films from around the world and across the decades. Yes, they have the original Wicker Man. Yes, they have The Visitor, one of my favorite cult classics ever. The service has something for everyone, from the casual fan to the hardcore horror devotee. Shudder's available on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, and Roku for $4.99 a month or $49.99 With an annual membership. Listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today to find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere.
1: Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly.
0: And I am Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly.
1: And Darren and I have just seen the first two episodes, first two parts of the new Twin Peaks, the thing that we've been waiting for, the thing that we've been prepping you for or trying to. Through our review of the first two seasons and the movie, for the sake of total transparency, we'd like to tell you uh, what's going on with our podcast right now and how we're going to structure our conversation today. We are we are recording this on Saturday morning. Uh, Darren and I uh, saw. Twin Peaks last night on Friday night at the Hollywood premiere. It was a cool event. Darren and I will exchange some thoughts about that in a second. What we're going to do first in this first podcast, Darren and I have not talked about what we saw last night at all. We have questions. We're a little confused. We have opinions. That much I know about Darren and I. Um, so we want to like just talk through here in this first podcast, just kind of basically what happened. What did I see? What did Darren see? Um, what did what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? And so we're gonna we're gonna do that here in the first podcast, and then we are going to devote our second podcast, which you also find here, to sort of like what we liked what we didn't like, some theories, some general impressions. And one big reason why we want to divide up the podcast like this and kind of give it to you a little raw, we're even kind of confused, I think, on names of new characters and such, is that um, by tomorrow night, on Sunday night, uh, Showtime will have provided the first, Four parts of Twin Peaks to the media. And so we will have seen four parts. And so we didn't want to record a podcast under the influence of the next two episodes. We wanted to give it to you raw, not spoil anything, not have our speculations or theories or analysis interpreted by what we know. So so we're coming at you a little raw. Maybe you are too. Um, so maybe we could figure this thing out together. Darren, we were at the Hollywood premiere last night, and it was quite an event. Like, Did, did you have a fun time? What What was your experience like?
0: Uh, Jeff, it was super fun. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, hosting the Facebook Live event that Showtime was having on the red carpet. I don't usually do stuff like this because I'm generally pretty anxious around famous people and even more so uh, around famous people who I tremendously respect. But I did bring my brother's DVD copy of Inland Empire with me and I got Laura Dern to sign it. And then she hugged me twice. So I, <laughs> I, I had a real night. It, it, it was very emotional even going into it. And then I'm sure you feel this way too. Being in the theater as we were kind of leading into the screening, the whole place was a buzz. Uh, Great Zabriskie was sitting behind me. Uh, Jeff Jensen was sitting in front of me two rows up. Um, <laughs> y- you know, there was there was a big moment where they kind of started, like, you know, giving shout-outs to everyone, to the crew. They asked uh, everyone from the cast to stand up, and seemingly the entire auditorium stood then. And then, of course, uh, you know, the CEO of, of Showtime uh, had Mark Frost stand up, loud clapping, very emotional. Then David Lynch walked on stage, uh, and I thought he gave a pretty strong straightforward introduction to the new season of, <laughs> of, of Twin Peaks, actually. I thought he really kind of cleared it all up. Do you remember what he, what, what he said when he was up there, Jeff?
1: Yes, he talked about it started off as a, as almost like a joke. And you kind of heard David Lynch do this kind of joke before when he's had to introduce Twin Peaks, he starts talking about the forest and it's about woods and trees and uh, a wind is moving through the the woods and the forest and leading you to someplace. And I'm not doing justice to it because what started off with a laugh suddenly became this really kind of like, he's, he's just a great storyteller and he's spinning this little allegorical yarn uh, a metaphorical yarn about what Twin Peaks is, this mysterious trip into a forest. You could hear a pin drop by the end, you know, and then that was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and welcome back to Twin Peaks and the, the, the curtain raised and we watched two hours of what the heck was that?
0: <laughs> uh, Jeff, uh, we've kind of decided that we are going to approach what happened on the two-hour premiere event kind of geographically. I, th- I think that's maybe the best way to approach it. Uh, yeah. As we'd sort of, as we'd kind of teased in the previous episode, new Twin Peaks isn't just Twin Peaks, um, that... which uh, which is which is definitely kind of interesting and, and makes it even more confusing than it used to be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And b- before we summarize by city. Let's do uh, right by the narrative and the experience and kind of describe it, though, generally, because what we got, what we experienced, and, 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 and listener, you may experience it differently depending on how Showtime is presenting it on Sunday night, but the way they cut... Uh, this experience for us was as, as almost like a two-hour movie. So we technically don't know where the dividing line between the parts is. And so, uh, so if you allow us to describe it as such, as a sort of two-hour experience, the, the story is just constantly moving between locations from Twin Peaks to the Black Lodge to South Dakota to Las Vegas to new york am i missing any other place in between there
0: uh i think that's all we saw yesterday and uh, just to clarify jeff not just south dakota buckhorn south dakota a lovely little town a
1: lovely little town (laughs) and uh it feels like in, in some ways we're getting like you know Like someone said to me afterward, you know, if you put all those scenes in a bag and just drew them out at random, it would make as much sense (laughs) as as what we saw last night. It had a very fragmented narrative. It tried, as Lynch narratives do, David Lynch narratives too, to, to kind of go from a structure of sort of a, a dream that kind of flows in and out of, of, of different things. But it was a dream without a central dreamer, a central focus. And it was a jarring, disjointed dream um, where you get these smash cuts between scenes and between places. And, you know, it was definitely like all over the place. You know, Tw- Twin Peaks is literally all over the place and figuratively all over the place. But it was all held together by this sort of like ominous thrum of of just just dread and and, and Lynch's storytelling power. So, with that said, like Darren, wh- where should we start in our summary? Should we start in Twin Peaks?
0: Let's begin in Twin Peaks. Let's start there. Um, one of the very first scenes in the episode. Uh, we're out in the woods. There's a delivery truck bringing a package presumably a very mysterious package Uh, and there's a man living in a trailer and that man I I love the moment when he stepped out of the door and I think he was wearing sunglasses and then he pulled off the sunglasses and you saw that it was you know the red lens and blue lens Dr. Jacoby's trademark and that's when we realized that oh so you know having just you know seen the interesting scene in the Black Lodge that we'll get to later the first character we're seeing from Twin Peaks proper is Dr. Jacoby
1: Exactly who you wanted to see.
0: <laughs> yeah. But uh he received he received a package. There was a shot of him kind of framed but you know framed in between two trees. Uh I believe he got a shovel, Jeff. He got and several
1: It looks like he got several shovels. Uh yes. Darren. Yes.
0: Yes, several shovels. Uh we can interpret from that that he is either burying something or digging something up. This is the level of analysis that that people can certainly expect from uh, this podcast. Um, <laughs> a- elsewhere in Twin Peaks, uh, again, we're just kind of going in chronological order here. Uh, we saw The Great Northern, uh, which it looks like is still doing okay business. Ben Horn, still in charge. New secretary, or at least a, a secretary who's new since last we saw him. Played by Ashley Judd, which was kind of nice. And, of course, Ben's uh, layabout brother, Jerry, still around. But, Jeff, he's had a little career change in the intervening 25 years. He's yes. Getting to the hy- he's he's getting into the hydroponic indica uh, up in <laughs> Portland.
1: <laughs> and, uh, yes, he's, uh, he's out of the hotel business, and he, he's into the newly legal uh, pot farming business, I believe.
0: I'm so tickled that back in 1989, 1990, you know, Jerry Horn was just this, like, Uber, like '80s businessman, doing like global deals, like uh, you know, negotiating with people from Iceland, negotiating with with people from Japan. And I love that now he's like the model of like the modern, like you know, Northwest entrepreneur. And he's getting into legal marijuana. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and let's talk a, just a just a brief second about the the Ben Horn that we are meeting here, and the dynamic between Ben and Jerry. You know, back in the day. Ben and Jerry were these ribald, transgressive uh, millionaire uh, businessmen who were cheating. You know, Ben was cheating on his spouse with multiple women. He was running a secret whorehouse <laughs> up north in Canada. But, but this Ben and Jerry, in their older years, uh, a little more chastened a little more humbled and conservative and mellow you're right i I hadn't really thought about that but i I liked that we seem to be
0: seeing that perhaps perhaps time has made them uh less awful than they than they used to be
1: well and (laughs) Uh, and, and, which and and a theme that maybe I, i can't say for sure that maybe we will see more of as Twin Peaks kind of plays out. But the one thing that I just kind of thought is, is that uh, it just, it captured my imagination a little bit for the mood and spirit of this town, post-Agent Cooper, post-Laura Palmer drama, kind of what happened to this town. Are they haunted by it? Are they depressed by it? Yes, life has gone on. And maybe everyone is sort of like, still as you know, as as sweeter and kinder at least at least the, the the evil people were. But uh but just sort of like what is the spiritual state of this town? That was an interesting thing that that moment uh captured my imagination for.
0: You know, speaking of capturing the imagination, uh the next scene set in Twin Peaks seems like the kind of thing that we are going to be overanalyzing quite a bit in the next few weeks. Uh but also a scene that that might mean nothing. A nervous man walks into the police department asks to see Sheriff Truman, Lucy loud applause. Lucy, still working reception, still not so great with the phones, asks him, which Sheriff Truman would you like to see? Yes. That that might make a difference. So we're, we're immediately, you know, in a show that loves sort of doubling and doppelgangers and everything, like this, you know, to sort of throw this in there feels like something that is somewhat meaningful. The Nervous Man was talking a lot about giving him insurance, but just just seemed very, like, flop sweaty. Like, it, it, it seemed very clear to me that, like, this was sort of selling insurance in some. Um, perhaps more insidious or more subtextual way. Uh, Lucy was sort of mentioning, oh, well, like, you know, there's one Sheriff Truman who's on a fishing trip. I think the other Sheriff Truman was in Seattle, if I'm
1: recalling correctly. I thought he was um, sick. I thought he was oh, sick. He was, I thought there was, he was one sick. Sheriff Truman who was sick, and the other one's gone fishing.
0: Th- that's right. So both Sheriff Trumans, neither of them were, were, were there that day. Nervous man walks away. Apparently running the store in the Twin Peaks PD while both Sheriff Trumans are gone is Deputy Chief Huck. And I don't know about you, Jeff, just for pure kind of emotion just rising in the crowd when we were watching this. Hard to beat the sequence where Deputy Chief Hawk received a phone call from the log lady, uh, yeah. played, of course, played, of course, by uh, the late Catherine Coulson who filmed her scenes before her sad passing. You know, the log lady, we kind of saw her. It's clear that she's also, you know, she is very unwell. She calls up Hawk to say, you know, in a really momentous way that gets to what you were talking about, about what is the spiritual State of Twin Peaks. She said, something is missing and you have to find it. It involves Agent Cooper and your heritage. And it was very clear that Hawk took that mission statement very, very seriously.
1: Yeah. I love what you had to say about that. Like um uh for people who were in the audience, bunch of Twin Peaks fans, cast crew, uh yeah, there was a lot of cheering throughout the two hours that we saw, which was Okay, kind of annoying sometimes. <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but but there were a couple moments that had some real emotional power to them that certainly leveraged what we knew about the Twin Peaks and, and our past experience with it and what we know about the production. And yeah, the Catherine Coulson moment um, with the Log Lady was just really poignant and powerful
0: now uh, deputy Hawk immediately gets on the case we see that he's kind of digging into some old boxes going through some old cases I kind of loved it it was a very kind of subtle thing but like the boxes were sort of like were, were sort of taped up with like red tape that was sort of like done up in X's on, on all sides great little like kind of subtle piece of design the the person bringing the boxes up from storage is none other than Andy and to me like maybe the scene that is, like, the most important to call out just in terms of, like, answering a key question that was going into this series, i.e., like, what has happened to Dale Cooper, or at least what are people's knowledge within this world of what happened to Dale Cooper? Hawk says that he's kind of investigating, you know, Dale and, you know, that the log lady has, has has given this him this advice. Lucy says that Dale Cooper disappeared before the birth of Wally, Wally apparently being her and Andy's child. And I... I loved this to me gets at, you know, the sort of the sort of very specific nature with which I'm guessing this season will be sort of unveiling big mythological revelations like this. We hear that Dale Cooper has disappeared. Like, okay, whoa, that's somebody to take in. And then from there, the scene mostly becomes about the fact that Wally was born the same day as Marlon (laughs) Brandt. Absolutely. And again, like we'll be digging into the big myth stuff, uh, you know, later on. But in these scenes, there were just those moments of seeing these characters back together that I thought really, really resonated. And, you know, from there, Jeff, we move into Hawk kind of is walking out into the woods. Uh, receives another phone call from the log lady. She says uh, the phrase that I believe was actually the descriptor for this episode on the TV guide, The Stars Turn and a Time Presents Itself. And then in what I thought was just again a really lovely emotional moment amidst an episode that was full of incredibly imposing sequences that I can barely describe, she sort of tells Hawk that you know if he has time, stop by, I have coffee and a Uh pie for you. Which, Of course, in in the world of Twin Peaks and in the world that David Lynch and Mark Frost have created, like saying you have coffee and pie is a hugely uh, you know it's almost a kind of you know religious avocation. So I thought that sequence was lovely. I believe I couldn't figure it out. Jeff, was he walking to Glastonbury Grove, or is that just kind of what I gleaned from the fact that he was walking through the trees there?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was. Um, his his we get the these classic Twin Peaks images of flashlights in the dark strobing uh, the forest and the trees and then illuminating uh, the grove there with its uh, sycamore trees surrounding the uh, the pool of burnt engine oil, I believe. Um, and then his uh, flashlight starts scanning the trees behind. Um, that portal that we know, portal being into the Black Lodge, and he starts seeing images of giant billowing red curtains flickering in and out. So he clearly understands that there is something mystical. Afoot, kind of like the these are the sort of the the, the aurora borealis, I think, uh, of uh, of Twin Peaks. <laughs> like you go out and look into the stars, or at least look up into the canopy of, of trees, and you see this, uh, you know, celestial light formation and uh, and, and and phenomenon. And um, so clearly, uh, I think he understands that this is. I don't know if this is something usual, if you go out there and you could see that all the time, or if it's just happening now. So, yeah, that was sort of the main arc, I believe, of the Twin Peaks portion of the narrative. With one exception, we got that absolutely amazing, disturbing scene with... A character and certainly an actress that I think might end up proving to be an MVP of this season. Laura Palmer's mom, uh, Sarah, played by Grace Zabriskie. We see her alone in her house in a pretty sad, disheveled state of affairs, sitting on a couch. Um, I don't know if she's surrounded by ashtrays and, and bottles. I really couldn't tell. But she is watching this uh, nature program on television that has this absolutely violent and gruesome, a depiction of kind of like cat-like animals uh, eating a a panther or something like that. I don't know. But it was disturbing and very reminiscent of the scene in Wild at Heart. I don't know if you had this flashback where the Harry Dean Stanton private investigator character is in his bed in a hotel room. Hotel rooms very important to uh, to David Lynch and this show, uh, watching a similar nature uh, show in which animals are tearing each other apart. Uh, What did you make of it? Well, Am I recapping that correctly, Darren?
0: You're recapping it correctly. Um, I thought this was just such a standout scene. What I loved about it was... There was just this profound sense of a life that has been almost barely lived for many, many years now. I mean, this is a character who, after the, after the Laura Palmer mystery was quote-unquote solved in the original series, Sarah Palmer really, really kind of like, you know, took a huge step backward from the show. And I just thought that to see her here, the home was very familiar, and yet it had that strong sense of time had just sort of piled up all around her. And the fact that the way that Grace Zabriskie played it and she just had a couple of reactions to what was happening on the television that were almost kind of lighthearted in a way. I I found that really remarkable and given what we kind of gleaned about the situation with Laura circa now elsewhere in in the show I I thought that was really profound and uh, really remarkable. Um, Just to kind of finish up Jeff here in Twin Peaks we did get a scene in the roadhouse Uh, no sign of Julie Cruz but it's clear that uh, the roadhouse's music lineup has... Uh, if the rest of Twin Peaks is stuck in a state of spiritual paralysis, the Roadhouse is at least able to get really, really good musicians in. Uh, we saw the, the chromatics playing. We uh, checked in again with Shelly. She was out for a night with her girlfriends talking about how her daughter is dating a no-good guy. Uh, we saw that James has apparently returned, looking pretty good, except for, you know, he's he's kind of lost some hair. But, uh, you know, apparently he had some sort a motorcycle accident. Uh, Balthazar Getty is apparently playing uh, Shelley's new boyfriend, which I thought was great just as a Lost Highway fan. But it, it, it felt like this scene was in some ways just being like, and by the way, here's a lot of other people from Twin Peaks that we haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> it,
1: it was an awkward way, I th- I think, to end the first two hours. And in general, what I would say from a big picture analysis point of view, I, I had a mixed feelings about most of the Twin Peaks scenes. Um, it felt to me, on one hand, like the storytelling felt obligated. The franchise felt obligated to serve its audience right away with these reminders and check-ins with all of these Twin Peaks characters. But they kind of do so without really activating their story. And I think that it, for me... It kind of interrupted the 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 flow and the and the design of I think that I think these two hours actually wanted to be more about their other places and mm-hmm. that if they they were more organized around the other places I think they might have had a different feel and maybe even a better feel to them. So these Twin Peaks uh, scenes felt to me a little bit like interruptions and a little bit like trying to like hold our hand a little bit and say hey don't worry. We will get to Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks is actually important. This still is Twin Peaks. But that said, I think that it's possible. I don't want to pass any judgments yet on the greater design of the series. We're only two hours into like 18 hours. And so the other vibe I got, the defense of all of this, is that it almost felt like Lynch and Frost are almost, uh, they're, they're composing a piece of music, and this is the baseline. Uh, Twin Peaks is the baseline that's going to run, run through this whole thing. and And I think that maybe we should consider some compare and contrasts as we move forward between what Twin Peaks represents versus what is happening in the rest of the world. And so In that regard, it is important to check in with Twin Peaks and get a spiritual vibe of this place because there is a relationship to the other parts of the world. But that scene at the Roadhouse there, I I guess it's as good as any way to end these two hours, but it it didn't initially go out with a bang-bang, if you will. Um...
0: (laughs) I kind of felt like, I mean, Jeff, you've talked so much about how there's been the description of this experience as an 18-hour movie. It did feel to me like that scene in the Roadhouse was like the end of the opening credits.
1: You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. If you're a fan of the dark fantasy or psychological horror of Twin Peaks, be sure to check out Shudder. It's a premium streaming video service backed by AMC Networks and is devoted to horrors, thrillers and suspense. With Shudder's programming, you'll always find something to scare you in a new way, whether you're looking for a classic suspense film, a cat and mouse thriller, a good old fashioned monster movie or even a terrifying tale of the supernatural. This week's shutter highlight is George Scott, a 10 episode folk horror series about a policewoman named Eva, who returns to her hometown seven years after her daughter's disappearance. As Eva begins investigating a new wave of vanishing children, her search draws her deep into the forest. She realizes there are supernatural secrets in town, and if she exposes them, it can make someone or something very angry. It sounds very Twin Peaksy. For 4 dollars a month or $49.99 with an annual membership, you can access Shudder on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, or Roku. But listeners of this podcast can get a free month simply by entering the promo code PEAKS, capital P, capital E, capital A, capital K, capital S, PEAKS, at checkout. That's P-E-A-K-S, all caps. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere.
0: I really like your idea. The Twin Peaks is the baseline. If that's the case, maybe we should get to the percussion uh, going on over in South Dakota. Wait, wait, um, wait Darren,
1: I'm going to hijack you there. Let's not go to South Dakota quite yet can we knock out las vegas real quick because it's just a scene and i suspect that it might be relevant to our discussion and conversation and analysis of the south dakota stuff we, we visit vegas real quick the show plants a flag here with one scene as if to say hey this is going to be a location here uh keep this in mind we see a, a casino boss i think um, uh, do a cash transaction with a flunky and uh, they speak kind of cryptically about an evil man that they are in business with. And the casino boss says rather mournfully and regretfully, whatever you do in your life, never do business with a man like that. I think that it would be very premature to speculate who that might be, or, 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 or maybe the, the text answered, answers this because we're about to get into the to a section of, of, of the show that it was actually hard for me to keep track of a little bit, but I think that we might suspect that the casino boss was paying for a hit on Dark Agent Cooper.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I thought the person he was talking about giving the job to, for some reason, I thought it might be Audrey. I, d- don't ask me why my brain immediately jumped to that. Maybe because like, cause he was in a casino, and it's a hotel, and she's worked at hotels. Your read on it is definitely more accurate, and that's a much better segue to getting into... Oh my God, Jeff! I have marked down in my notes here, my notes, which, by the way, are like an, an incoherent mess. Kyle McLachlan looks like Bob! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! I took the time in a theater to write four exclamation points when I saw that. Um, we saw a a long shot, uh, you know, of the lights of a car moving down a long and winding road. Out steps Dark Agent Cooper who. Who is done up entirely like Frank Silva as Bob. He goes into just some classic like flop house run by a lady named Beulah asks to see uh, I think it was Daria and Ray these two kind of younger people who come out. Clear that there's some general skullduggery happening there. Not immediately clear what precisely. And then we kind of get into what seems to me like at least the initial murder mystery element of this show. And it's still unclear to me to what extent this all kind of relates back to everything else we're seeing. Um, Some cops find in an apartment uh, the head of a woman. And I love this is my favorite just kind of minor moment from the episode. Cop walks in, sees the head of a woman with a hole in her eye, says, "Uh uh-oh, more cops arrive more cops then pull the sheet off same cop says uh-oh and we realize that the body which is not attached to the head is the body of a man <laughs>
1: <laughs> i just love the sort of the sort of morbid
0: humor in that moment
1: and can we also kind of just just briefly i'll try to be brief i know that we can't do this for every scene but just the way that that lynch shoots edits and designs this sequence is classic Lynch um, in the sense of moving us from like absurd comedy and a slightly lighter tone lulling us into a sense of just like, what is this about? It's so random. It's kind of quirky, funny. Is it funny? I'm not sure, but it's, but it's it has an entertaining texture to it that is sort of defined by that word quirky, But you realize by the end that it's all rope-a-dope setting you up for the discovery of this body as these two cops, uh, like, enter, you know, realize that there's a room down that hallway and the door is cracked open and we see a bed and we see a lump underneath the sheets. What is it? And then he milks this dread as you walk up and what are we going to see but let's talk about that absurd buildup for a minute because it's just this, like, this great scene with this character with a woman that, you know, a rather large woman that has this small yipping dog and she's like barreling into her apartment and getting on the phone one of these classic Lynch phones with a really color-coded with a really long cord <laughs> and she's calling the cops, just going on and on and on in a really sort of heightened speech way <laughs> and uh, the cops show up and and what's really striking to me about this scene, and I don't know if you felt this way, we just get this like both from all of these characters, but especially her, this sort of flood of detail that honestly I don't think means anything. <laughs> it's large it's it's largely like a list of names about people and relationships and stuff like that. And you know, I was thinking like, oh my gosh, if if this character is setting up a new world and a new front of story, like I'm going to need a scorecard. She's talking way too fast, whatever. And then I kind of think, this is kind of the joke, um, <laughs> which is, it's kind of a meta joke because I don't know if we will spend a lot more time in this city and we will get to know all these people that she's describing, but it's flooding us with all of these details and these quirky characters and including a handyman who might've been like pilfering the place or helping to set up that murder, talking on this really large oversized phone and uh, and, and all of that. But like, again, you know, what happens over the course of this scene is that it kind of like then boil it goes from this hyper detailed, absurd quirkiness. Boiling down to its essential dread and horror and uh, which is that body in the bed which is a head that is dislocated from a you know a bloated body which again like is a classic lynch trope I mean I was I was recalling kind of like the the dead body in the apartment in Diane Selwyn's apartment in Mulholland Drive and I think there's going to be a level of analysis here uh, Darren that we'll have to get to in the weeks to come in which Lynch is sort of almost maybe knowingly quoting or vaguely nodding to his life's work here. but yeah, so that 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 scene was like it, it kind of went from like what uh, amusing to what is going on to like, oh like. Bravo! It's it's so Lynch, It's almost feels like Lynch doing Lynch, but it was very effective.
0: Yeah, you know, from there we move to the investigation, and like you, Jeff, I kind of thought, like, okay, this is going to be just like the first part of Fire Walk with me, like, you know, we're going to get a, another kind of full investigation. Um, smash cut to the police station where they do fingerprint analysis and immediately find a suspect, uh, the suspect played by uh, Matthew Lillard, who, like, I have to say, just, like, minor, uh, you know, Hollywood stories here he was at the premiere and he looks really good on this show he somehow looks like Peter Laurie. like I I don't know just like the way that Lynch filmed him just like these eyes sort of bugging out and this tremendous shadow falling over his face Um, we find out that the dead woman is Ruth Davenport a local librarian Uh, Matthew Lillard's character is brought in by the police he's the principal at the school we're reminded of several times he is very clearly hiding something Um, you know he claims that uh, you know he went straight home. That that immediately is is clearly not the case. The police go to his house, look in his trunk. There's one cop in, in particular who, from one angle, looks a lot like Tom Brady, which made me hate him immediately. Um, but we'll, we'll see we'll see if he reappears. Um, and they find in his trunk. I, I'm sure you noticed this little moment, uh, Jeff. Uh, the main cop, kind of investigating the case, shines his flashlight in the trunk, and of course, it's sort of strobing on and off. And he says. Oh, my my flashlight's broke, because whenever you're at the beginning of an investigation in the world of Twin Peaks, the light always has to be strobing. It can never be a solid (laughs) beam of light. And I believe in that trunk, there was a lot of stuff in this episode where I kind of just like marked down like skin, question mark. I believe that that was a tongue that they found in Matthew Lillard's trunk, right?
1: Sure, let's go for a tongue
0: let's go for a tongue Matthew Lillard then he's in prison his wife Phyllis comes to visit him I mean this seed talk about so far every moment here has felt you know we're really just following this investigation there's a certain clinical aspect to it we jump immediately into like full-scale uh invitation to love territory his wife comes in she says that she knew he was having an affair with a librarian he says that she knows that she was having an affair with george and maybe somebody else too she kind of just walks away telling him life in prison bill Life in prison and so there's a clear sense that was he framed I believe that he that this this is the scene Jeff where he says that he had a dream that he was in her apartment which might be why his fingerprints are all over the apartment but just this the, the dynamic between these two jumps straight to like season seven of Dynasty very very quickly and, and I love <laughs> and ju- just to add like sort of a wonderful Button to this seed. She walks out and runs immediately into George, his lawyer, who she's apparently been sleeping with. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, I mean, just to talk about something that, I want to hear what you think happened here. Before we leave that that sequence, we see Matthew Lillard. He's in prison. He's sort of like in total disarray. We kind of move gradually down the empty other prison cells to where we see... A man who appears to be entirely sort of dressed in dirt or mud or, or, or like, like something. it he looked a little bit to me like the guy in the alley in Mulholland
1: Drive.
0: And he yeah. just, he kind of disappears. Like, is, was that kind of what you saw or was I hallucinating?
1: <laughs> yeah, that that was a really unsettling scene. Um, you got the sense as that camera is now panning down the prison to another cell that we're about to see something. I wasn't expecting to see that classic Lynch sinister monster imagery. And yeah, um, someone afterwards said that like it looked like a burnt to a crisp Abraham Lincoln. So, <laughs> I, I don't know. But yes, my first thought was, oh, the, the scary man behind the diner in Dry was my first thought. But yes, the, the the sinister embodiment of maybe evil and corruption, I would say, suddenly evaporates and we see just its head kind of float off. And what I was really remembering was season one twin peaks when they're discussing the relationship between Leland and Bob, this sort of uh, you know, very, you know, human damaged evil man Leland and then that this supernatural demon called Bob and the evil that pe- described as the evil that people do so so that's the vibe that I got we're, we're, we're seeing this sort of a representation of an idea that is very common to tw- in the world of Twin Peaks which is that very human evil uh born of human nature being uh trolled possessed and manipulated by supernatural evil that feeds off of it and gooses off of it. And I think that that ends up being connected to the next scene that we see with Dark Cooper visiting uh, Phyllis. But before we just kind of go forward with there, just some thoughts about all of that stuff with with, uh, the Matthew Lillard character and Phyllis, right? The character's name Phyllis? Yes, yes. I believe
0: Um, it's it's Bill and Phyllis. Bill and Phyllis. And Jeff, it's a real tragedy this happened to them. The Morgans were coming for dinner. And I'm just... (laughs) I'm just kind of. I'm a little concerned that they're not going to have dinner with the Morgans. I just. I this is this is the big tragedy, and people aren't talking about this enough. <laughs>
1: right, great Lynch comedy there. I absolutely loved this sequence. I kind of like th- this whole little story, and in fact, like you know, it, it didn't necessarily. You know, it's 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 very Lynch, and you're kind of wondering like, what is the connection to Twin Peaks here? But in a way, uh, Lynch getting away from like uh, Twin Peaks imagery, Twin Peaks characters, uh, creates this very potent sequence of like Lynch suburban noir psychosexual horror you know Bill and Phyllis the, the actors who played them i thought were just amazing that's great and like oh, great i think Lillard was awesome kind of giving one of these like really intensely felt david lynch performances that he gets out of his actors where there's just so much roiling inside him like the vibrating emotions of a of an expressionist Kakashka painting which i know <laughs> is a influence for lynch but like and then and then they seem to be this happily married couple but then they get into that prison together and then they kind of reveal all of this hatred that they have for each other. And you kind of realize that marriage doesn't always go well in a a David Lynch film. And in fact, this whole... Plot had echoes to me of Lost Highway and the whole sort of like first part of that movie with you know the tension between Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette and the, the jealousies and the and the tensions that royal their marriage. There's something familiar to me about that and this whole sequence too just like had echoes to Blue Velvet the sort of generic small town uh, police station uh, the suburban lawns uh, again more echo. To his work. So, finally, I would just say that it's interesting that if this is the one featured crime here in this new salvo of Twin Peaks, and and, in the first Twin Peaks, it was set in motion, or the the centerpiece crime was a, a murder of a girl, and we come to later find out is like incest and all of this stuff. Here, it's adultery, it's broken faith that leads to kind of murder and lost love. So, lost love. Betrayed love, adultery, I wouldn't be surprised if these crimes have very metaphorical spiritual significance to the larger cultural condition that we're going to be getting at with Twin Peaks. So anyway, that said, Phyllis leaves her husband to rot and she goes home and she's met at home by Dark Agent Cooper, um, who seemed to know each other. Did you get that sense that they got to know each other? They seemed to know each other. My interpretation
0: was that he was the other guy that uh, Matthew Lillard was talking about, that she'd been having some kind of, some kind of an affair with. But what he said to her specifically is very interesting. He said, you did good. You follow human nature perfectly. And for, yes. a, for a moment, I thought... Is this an implication that she is also some sort of a walk-in figure, some sort of other Bob or something like that? Uh, that theory was maybe immediately dashed by the fact that then Dark Agent Cooper said very nonchalantly, this is George's gun, and then shot her. So I I find myself wondering, do I interpret the follow human nature line as, you know, here is a certain kind of being talking to another kind of being, or is it this higher being speaking? speaking? Speaking to what he considers a sort of, you know, he clearly views humans in a very kind of ant-like way, almost kind of being very sarcastic, like, you followed your nature perfectly, and then killing her. It seems like there's a couple different ways to read uh, that scene. And I I did just love how we're very aware that I can't tell you what the hell Dark Agent Cooper is doing precisely, but it's very clear that in all things he is a sort of Heisenberg-y figure in this world. There is kind of no stone left unturned in whatever sort of like various criminal antics he's doing. He's kind of planned it out so that he kind of he can kind of disappear out of this. And you know, one person's dead, he's already framed another person. Uh, I-, I found that sort of interesting. I almost wondered if he was kind of leaving a trail of breadcrumbs here in uh, Buckhorn in the same way that, you know, Lynch himself and Frost as storytellers are kind of leaving trails of uh, breadcrumbs. That's me going meta. And we're not even at the meta part of the show yet, everybody. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, there is this sort of portrayal of Dark Cooper as this, he's literally this underworld figure that has this really broad network of scuzzy, uh, low-life partners, Thieves, hitmen, um, just career criminals. Jeff, and Jeff, it- Jeff,
0: if I may quote Beulah. It's a world of truck drivers.
1: (laughs) It's a world of truck drivers. That's right. Um, So he's like literally kind of this major underworld figure that he's hired to do jobs. He insinuates himself in the lives of people and does evil, kind of maybe resembling kind of like that Billy Bob Thornton character in the first season of Fargo, who is, both a paid hitman, but also sort of like a professional mischief maker. But he's also kind of figuratively an underworld figure, this incarnation of of evil that uh, that seeks out worldly evil and attends to it and clearly gets something out of it um, we've we got another scene shortly after this one in, in the arc of this story in which dark Cooper who he's, he just he just reeks of like of evil you know his so he's clearly spent a lot of time producing evil under the sun because he's very tan and leathery um, <laughs> but he's got dirt underneath his fingernails and he's got that long black hair that yes, is very Bob esque. And I, I thought that Kyle McLaughlin might not have been well served by his costume in wig, but I think his performance is pretty good. There is something so sinister but yet haunted by, like, you know, you get the sense of a survivor character, a character who we would later kind of come find out that that is very true, that, that his his moment in the sun here is about to end because the Black Lodge wants to claim him once again. But But the way that Lynch shoots him really emphasizes the darkness in his eyes. So he's like this... Figurative Lucifer, too, this on the loose devil that you know loves to do what he does, hates to do what he does, but has no intention of being bottled up ever again. Um, we got that a moment where he's working with another one of his associates. They're rigging a car perhaps to be exploded like later on in the show. And they're putting it in a a garage and, and he kills this poor man simply by rubbing his cheeks as if rubbing him out, rubbing the life out of him. I thought that was a really weird scene. And then finally, he goes back to this motel. and Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about this scene where he uh, he kills one of his female associates, and her, I forget what her name is. All I of believe a her
0: name is Daria, but uh, it might be Darla. Either way, uh, I share the first three letters of her name, so I feel a, a strong a sense of sadness over what happens to her in this scene. She's kind of talking to the other young associate who we saw Bob slash Dark Cooper pick up earlier. Um, it's clear that she's kind of nervous about his arrival. She hangs up very quickly. She says that she was talking to Jack. Uh-oh! It turns out Jack was the guy that Dark Cooper squeezed the life out of two hours ago. Uh, she asks him, are you going to kill me? And th- this to me was really the peak of Kyle MacLachlan playing this Luciferian character I- in this episode. He just says nonchalantly, yes. <laughs> but, 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 but first, he asks her some questions. It's clear that they've been hired to kill him. They were going to split it by half a million. Her associate is now in federal prison. He kind of says that he's being called back to this place called the Black Lodge, but he doesn't want to go back. He shows her an ace card... With the face of what I thought was an insect or maybe an ant, uh, but op- open for further interpretation on that, uh, he does kill her. There, there is a lot of shooting women in the head in this episode. Uh, which, which I thought, given what happens in the Black Lodge and and the specific thing that we see happen with Laura Palmer's head, is something that we might want to talk about later. But then, Jeff, here's where we're going to get into like not like theory analysis and more just like what literally did we see happen um we see dark cooper hop on a computer and join uh he signs into the fbi network which immediately kind of calls up this interesting question of like does he still have access to this is he kind of like you yes. know hacking in there somehow is dark cooper still in the fbi then he makes contact with someone on a device and he believes he is talking to Philip Jeffries, the yes. fellow the fellow played by David Bowie in the very memorable sequence from Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. This figure that he thinks is Philip Jeffries, this figure says, You, Dark Cooper, spoke to Major Garland Briggs. And there is this interesting sense of back and forth where Dark Cooper no longer seems to think he knows who he's talking to. And then he looks up that the guy he's looking for is in Yankton Federal Prison, which I choose to believe is a reference to Deadwood because Deadwood talked a lot about Yankton. I still couldn't tell you what that was all about. But what, what, what was your interpretation of just what we saw in that sequence? Lots of technology floating around there that kind of confused me.
1: You know, the technology was part of the thing that actually uh, yeah, I didn't really know <laughs> Um it was a, a bit of sinister weirdness that I was just kind of luxuriating in because I trusted that this narrative is eventually going to tell me what that moment was all about. Um, but from a theory perspective, a mythology perspective, yes. I mean, I loved like, oh my gosh, like, okay, now this is our first Co-opting of Twin Peaks' Fire Walk with Me, bringing this into the mythology. Agent Jeffries, the teleporting FBI agent from that movie, um, is name-checked here, but he seems to have gone missing, and obviously for good reason. Bowie is unfortunately not with us. How awesome would it be if he was actually in this show? Um, But just like the idea that like Dark Cooper kind of uses this sort of like evil technology. Like I I don't even understand how his computer and hacking and devices were all working. I kind of got the sense that it was like it, like Lynch was also almost treating these things as like magical objects. <laughs> um, and with with the hacking into FBI databases or and into the prison, kind of almost like these like, you know, magical cheat codes for hacking into reality and gaining information. Um, so there was something almost vaguely occult about, you know, Dark Cooper going techno, that kind of like felt um, a- appropriate. But yeah, like lots of flag uh, uh, p- uh, planting here. Where is this going to go? I-, I don't know. But yes, uh, I was I was very intrigued by all of that, Darren. I think that's the end of the South Dakota arc. And I have a stroke of inspiration here for our podcast. Unless you think there's anything else to say about South Dakota,
0: Jeff, give me that stroke of inspiration.
1: I think that we should end part one of our podcast here. And then in part two, we will unpack the Black Lodge and that absolutely meta sequence in New York City that might've been the most potent Lynchian sequence in this whole dang thing uh, beyond the Black Lodge, uh, but also kind of this real meta framing of Twin Peaks, the return in general. So, should we end it right here and then like, we'll start part two?
0: Let's end it right here. Rest assured, everyone, we will explain the most confusing parts in great detail and indeed solve them in the next episode. Find that in the feed. Meanwhile, uh, give us a shout out on Twitter. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. We want to hear everything you think about this because the stuff that we just described, we're not so sure about. We're going to be rewatching these episodes, uh, especially once we see episodes three and four. But email us all your thoughts, all your theories, Please explain what happened with the technology at the end there, anyone who's more aware of this stuff than us. And uh, also wanted to just quickly point out, Jennifer Jason Leigh, best celebrity cameo in this whole thing, playing Chantal yeah. in the room next door, gun in one yes. hand, beer in the other. Uh, email us at <laughs> twinpeaks at ew.com, and make sure to read EW's recap of Twin Peaks, written by none other than the Jeff Jensen, at ew.com. We'll be back momentarily.
1: Thanks for listening to the podcast today, brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. It's curated by horror fans who have a deep love and respect for the genre, and it shows. You'll find films you never knew existed, along with some of your old favorites, that never fail to frighten. Remember, you can find Shudder on the web, as well as Apple TV, Roku, Google Play, and Amazon Prime for 4 dollars a month or $49.99 with an annual membership. And don't forget... Listeners to our podcast can get a free month by entering the promo code PEAKS, that's capital P, capital E, capital A, capital K, capital S, PEAKS, all caps, at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere.